You are listening to the official podcast of First Baptist Church of Cape Girardeau. We are a community of faith, hope, and love located in Southeast Missouri. For more information, visit our website at fbccape.com. The scripture this morning will be from Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to entrap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care for no man, for you do not regard the position of men, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a coin and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it was Benjamin Franklin who supposedly said that in this world, there is nothing that it can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Well, I've got good news and I've got bad news for you this morning. The good news is we're not going to talk about death. The bad news is we are going to talk about taxes. And I'm trying to avoid eye contact with Jim Hillen because I still need to turn mine in. I hope you've at least thought about yours, getting them in soon. Well, we are continuing our Lenten journey through the last week of Jesus' life in the Gospel of Mark. And so far, we've explored the events of Sunday, and we've explored the events of Monday. And what we've seen so far is that Jesus has triumphantly entered into Jerusalem, and he's caused a ruckus at the temple. And now we've entered into Tuesday. Tuesday is a long, long day, and I wish that we could cover all of Tuesday, but instead we're going to look at two quick snapshots that come from Tuesday. And each of these passages that we're going to look at today deal with money. So I think if we, can, if we can pay attention, if we can open our hearts and our minds, I think that there are some things that God can say to us about the relationship that we have with money. Our passages for this morning take place in a series of dialogues between Jesus and the religious leaders of the temple in Jerusalem. See, after Jesus has overturned the tables in the temple and after he's driven out the money changers, these leaders are justifiably wondering, who does this guy think he is? Where does he think he gets the authority to act this way? And the passage that Philip just read for us begins with us learning that a group of Pharisees and Herodians have approached Jesus with the intent to trap him. And one important detail that we have to know about both passages we're going to look at today is that they take place in the temple. And they come to him and they first try to butter him up. 
They heap these compliments on him. Oh, great teacher Jesus, we, we know that you take your faith seriously, and we know that you teach God's truth. Mm-hmm. Is anyone else like me, and you can sometimes be cynical, and when somebody starts talking to you with a compliment, you're like, what's your angle, pal? Because then these leaders ask him a question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor? I would imagine that after they ask this question, you could hear a pin drop in the room. Because this is a highly loaded question, and it puts Jesus in a tight spot. If Jesus says, no, we should not pay taxes to Caesar, then he puts himself in a lot of danger. That's a clear-cut sign of treason. It would be a black-and-white example that the, the Roman leaders could use to immediately rest, arrest him on the spot. But if Jesus says, why, yes, of course you should pay taxes to Caesar, then he puts himself at odds with the common people. And you have to remember that what we've seen so far in the Gospel of Mark is that the ministry of Jesus is really a ministry of the common people. The Pharisees have put Jesus in a position where he must either declare himself to be a political traitor or a religious traitor. How could Jesus possibly get out of this trap? And like I said, I just I like to imagine that you could just hear a pin drop. Everyone's waiting. How is he going to respond to this? And this was a lively question for the readers of Mark's gospel, too. Mark's gospel was written during a time when Christians were being persecuted. And the early church was wrestling with the relationship that they had with the empire. The real question that they were wrestling with as a church is the question, are we being faithful to the gospel if we pay taxes to the empire? Mark tells us that Jesus knows the hypocrisy of their hearts, and the way that Jesus answers them is brilliant. He doesn't say yes, and he doesn't say no. Instead, he asks, uh, does anybody have a coin? Choir, anybody have a coin? Yeah, I'm sure uppity choir members have coins, right? <laughs> It's a bunch of millennials who don't have cash. Thank you, Linda May. Thank you very much. It's a shiny one. Yeah, thank you very much. So he asked them, does anybody have a coin? But he asked them specifically. This is a quarter, obviously. But he asked them, does anybody have a denarius? Yes, thank you. That's a denarius. So a denarius was a Roman coin that had the image of Caesar on it. It had Caesar's image on it. But it also, these, these words around the edge, they say something else. That's called the Pontifex Maximus. And to the average Judean, this coin would be highly offensive. 
This coin to have in your possession would have been in and of itself a heresy. Because what Pontifex Maximus says is it says that Caesar is Lord. To have this coin in your possession in the temple would have been heresy. Does Jesus pull this coin out of his pocket? No. He asks them for the coin. The very people who are trying to trap him, jangling around in their pockets, have this. Jesus has shown their hypocrisy. They tried to get Jesus in a trap, and Linda May is not in a trap, by the way, but yeah, yeah. They tried to get Jesus in a trap, and instead he has sprung his own trap, and they took the bait. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. Then Jesus asked them a question. He, he holds up the denarius and he says, whose image is on this? Whose title is on this? And they answer, well, the emperor, Caesar. And he says, well, then give the emperor what is the emperor's, but give to God what is God. And Mark tells him, they are amazed at him. Thank you, Linda. So what's going on here? Well, it's important that we understand how to interpret this passage because sometimes this passage is really misused in the greater culture. During the civil rights movement, when some Christians wanted other Christians to calm down about civil rights and to obey the laws of the land, they said, hey, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And sometimes it's used as a phrase, as, hey, are, we ought to just listen to the government. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Is that what is happening here? No. Because there's much more happening here than it seems. So here's a really important detail. When Jesus says, whose image is on this, he uses a very specific Greek word. The Greek word is the word icon. Yeah, there it is, icon. Icon is a loaded theological word. The Bible that Jesus would have used at the time was probably a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. Greek, icon is a Greek word, and there's a passage that uses this word. It comes from the book of Genesis. Genesis 1.27. So God created humankind in his image, icon. In the image, icon, of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. When Jesus asks for a coin, he points out that on the coin is the icon of Caesar. So Jesus says, fine. If Caesar wants to slap his image on something, fine, give it back to him. Who cares? But give to God what is God's. And what bears God's image? You do. You do. 
in theology, we call this the imago Dei, the image of God. It is the belief that every single human being bears God's image. Jesus also says to give to God what belongs to God, which begs the question, doesn't it, what belongs to God? Everything. Everything belongs to God. Does Jesus say, don't pay your taxes? No. He says, eh, if Caesar wants that money so bad, if he wants it so bad, he wants to slap his ugly mug on it, let him have it. Who cares? But you better make sure that you remember that Caesar is not even in the same league as God. Caesar might have these stupid little pieces of metal pressed that he's narcissistic enough to put his own image on it, but do not forget whose image you bear. Do not ever forget to whom you belong, to whom everything belongs. How would it change the way we view ourselves? How would it change the way we view other people if we remembered that they bear the image of God? There is a Dutch bicycle shop called Van Moof. Van Moof sells 90% of their products online. One of the problems that they had when they started doing this is that when they would send bikes and bike parts through the mail, they found that they got easily damaged and people complained because their bike parts were messed up. Customers were upset because the bike parts arrived in less than pristine condition. So what did Van Moof do? Well, Van Moof started printing their boxes with the image of a flat-screen plasma TV on it. It still has bike parts in it, but it has the image of a TV on it. And what they found was that mail carriers and customers started treating this box differently. And it arrived in great condition. They treated it like it was fragile, even though it's just bike parts. How would it change the way you view yourself if you knew that you bore the image, the icon of God? How would it change the way that we view, the way we talk about, the way we interact with other people if we remember that they bear the image of God? And we read again from the 12th chapter of Mark, verses 41 to 44. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins worth about a penny. Then he called his disciples and said to them, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those 
who are contributing to the treasury. For all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Hello again. Our first passage that we looked at uh, had to do uh, with the Roman Empire, but this passage has to do with the temple. If you've spent any time around church, I promise you that you've probably heard a sermon on this passage before. Preachers love to use this sermon when they want to preach about tithing. You know, you've all heard about the widow's might, about how this widow with her two small coins gave so much, so much more than those rich people. You've probably heard a sermon like that, and it's meant to convince you, hey, even the small amount that you give can help. And hey, yeah, I don't want to argue with that. that. That's a good thing to do, and that's a good thing to know. Uh, personally, my favorite passage about tithing is the one in the book of Acts about Ananias and Sapphira. Um, if you don't get that, go back and read it uh, later on. Uh, that, but when I preach on tithing, that's my, that's my go-to one, not the widow's might. And part of the reason for that is because I think that often this passage is misunderstood. This passage is not about tithing. This passage is about justice. So here's the scene that Sandra just read for us. Jesus and his disciples, they're still in the temple, and they're still verbally wrangling with the scribes and the Pharisees, and they've been doing it all day long. That's why I called the one earlier Tuesday morning and this one Tuesday afternoon. Jesus is now facing the treasury, And he's watching people come in and drop large sums of cash into the treasury. And this woman approaches. And she's just got two small coins worth about a penny. And Jesus watches as this woman takes out her little snap coin purse and places them in the treasury. And it's a sweet little story about how much she gave. But I think in order to understand what's really happening in this story, we need to read it in context. Sandra just read for us uh, chapter 12, verses 41 to 44. I want to bump up to the passage before that. And I think you'll be surprised by when you read that, how you might see this story in a different light. Starting in verse 38 of chapter 12. As he taught, Jesus said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for the sake of appearance say long prayers. 
they will receive the greater condemnation. They devour widows' houses. What does that mean? Well, scribes in the ancient world were, in addition to being religious leaders, they were also legal leaders. They were kind of the closest thing that we might think of as lawyers. They handled a slew of legal matters. And one of the things that they did was that they acted as legal guardians for the estate of widows who had lost all their male relatives because widows had no legal standing at this time. They were the most vulnerable people in society. Scribes were becoming the, 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 uh, they, the, the uh, uh, leaders of their estate, and they were taking it in Jesus' position by exploiting the most vulnerable in the community and saying how these scribes love to show everybody how pious and religious they are while at the same time exploiting the poor in the community. And when you know that, when you read this passage above, it changes the way you view the passage that Sandra read for us. It takes on a bit of a different tone. Imagine for, with me for a moment that you're one of the disciples, that you're with Jesus on this day. Jesus has just got finished telling you that the scribes of the temple are devouring widows' homes. And while he's talking over his shoulder, maybe, you can see all of the rich folks coming in and bringing their offerings and making a big show of dropping it in the treasury box. And then in walks this widow. She shuffles to the box. She takes out two small coins. And in rereading this story, I like to imagine that she lets these coins drop with a thud. Because maybe this widow shuffles off. Maybe she takes these coins and she plops them in there because what she's really saying is, Here, you want all I have? You want all I have? Well, you forgot these two coins, fellas. Fine, take it all. Take it all. The story is not so much about tithing. It's about justice. It's about what happens when religious folks receive power and they abuse that power. And they use their position to take advantage of people. So this morning, related to both of our stories, I want to talk about economic justice. What does economic justice look like for you personally? And then what does it look like for us as a community? So first, our personal economic justice. Both of the stories that we've looked at have to do with money. Everyone's favorite topic, and I know that's why you showed up this morning, is for me to talk about money. Well, we have a debt crisis in our country, and I know that that doesn't seem like a theological issue, but I think it is. 
personal debt has now reached $4 trillion. A quarter of that is credit card debt. Another quarter of that is student loan debt. And most of it is medical debt. The amount of debt that we carry means that we can do less. It means that we can give less. It puts an enormous amount of stress on ourselves, on our families, on our marriages. A recent study found that the number one issue that most couples fight about is money. This is behind infidelity. Money. And I truly believe that one of the most godly things we can do is to try to relieve debt in our lives. Because I think that part of the gospel is not just freedom of of the afterlife and those sorts of stuff that we love to sing about and that we should sing about, but it's also about freedom within this life. Freedom to do what God is calling us to do. And oftentimes, debt has crippled people. They are slaves in a way. Financial Peace University is taught by a man named Dave Ramsey. It's a class that's offered, and and it features common sense approaches to how we manage our money. I remember a few years ago on a Saturday Night Live, one of the, Steve Martin was the host, and one of the fake commercials was that Steve Martin was this really innovative financial guru, and he said that I have this brand new financial system that is geared towards Americans, and if you follow my system, it will change the way you live your life. The title of the system is, if you don't have money for it, don't buy it. If you don't have money for it, don't buy it. And people in the commercial were like, I want a speedboat, but I don't have money for it. Steve Martin said, don't buy it. It changed the way that people live their lives. Well, I kind of feel that way about Financial Peace University. How many of you have been through a Financial Peace University class? Good, 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 good. Well, it gives people a framework for how they approach their money and how they can handle their debt. Our church has offered this class before, and I'm hoping that we will do it again in the near future. But for right now, if you are sitting there and you feel like this is something that I need to tackle in my own life, I want to tell you about two opportunities where this class is being offered in our local community. One actually starts this Tuesday, March 26th, at Crossroads Church in Jackson. And the other starts on April 26th at St. Francis Hospital. Friends, I know this is an odd thing to talk about in a sermon, but to me, this is important. I deal with too many people that experience stress and and, and anxiety in their lives that is related to what they owe. We need to be people who are free. And I'm not talking about some prosperity gospel where I think you ought to pray for a Lexus and God's going to give you a Lexus. 
I'm talking about being free so that you can do more for the kingdom of God in the here and the now. I want us to be people who are concerned about personal economic justice. The widow in our story was indebted. Indebted to people who should have known better. What would it have looked like for a community to come around this widow and say, we want to walk with you in getting out of that debt? Because here's the thing about that story of the widow. No one ever asked, why does she only have two coins? That's the real question. Why does this widow only have two coins? And that leads me to communal justice. I want to read to you from an article in a magazine. It's called Fellowship Magazine. It's published by the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. It's completely free to subscribe, and I would encourage all of you to go to CBF's website and subscribe. It tells you about ministries involved with the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship across the country. Recently, there was an article in here about a CBF congregation in Springfield, Missouri, called University Heights Baptist Church. I want to read to you part of this article. The state of Missouri is a lush oasis for predatory loans. And in Missouri, there are more predatory payday lenders than there are Starbucks, McDonald's, and Walmart stores combined. In 2017, Missouri lenders issued more than 1.6 million payday loans, averaging about one in four residents, each carrying an average annual interest of 462%. If you add tens of million dollars in fines, you have an abuse of epidemic proportions. And in May 2018, the Missouri House Financial Institutions Committee passed a bill that claimed to curb predatory lending, but still allowed a 35% increase every two weeks. That translates to 910% interest, nearly twice the average interest rate on a payday advance. 150 miles south of Jefferson City in Springfield, Missouri, University Heights Baptist Church isn't fooled and isn't waiting for an act of the state legislature or United States Congress to protect its vulnerable neighbors. They are taking matters into their own hands with founding something called University Hope, a ministry that provides small rescue loans to individuals and families trapped in the predatory loan cycle. University Hope provides rescue loans of $1,000 or less to families in Springfield. The church underwrites the loan with a local credit union and helps families escape from debt without turning to predatory loan sharks. We want to help people regain a sense of hope, University Heights Pastor Danny Chisholm said. For those who have fallen into a debt trap and gotten involved in predatory loans, there's a lot of shame. 
you lose some of your dignity. We want to hear people's stories and help them if we can. We want to restore a sense of hope for people and help them regain that dignity as they get a better handle on their finances and make progress toward becoming debt-free. I really try very careful in my role as pastor to not be too political uh, from the pulpit. Um, This is not a conservative or a liberal issue, friends. This is a moral issue. We have these kinds of businesses in our community, and I want to drive them out of business. We can do that. We can do that. We can do what University Heights has done. We can set aside funds and First Baptist Cape can say to the community, you don't have to go to those places. We will help you. We will work with you. We will help you to achieve economic justice in your life. So here's what I'm asking. If you feel God speaking to you now about this, if you feel a tug, I want a group of people from First Baptist for us to commission them to travel to Springfield, to meet with people from University Heights, to hear from them. How did you start this in your church? Who were the people who rose up and complained, and how did you deal with that? I want to know if there are people in our community who want to be part of a team to combat this in Cape Girardeau. So if you are feeling God tugging on your heart about this issue, we should talk. Who are the widows in our community? Who are those who are crippled by unjust economics? And what are the people of God going to do about it? During the Tuesday of this last week, Jesus spends a lot of time talking about money. What is your relationship with money? Here's what I want us to remember. Do not forget whose image you bear. Do not forget that others bear that image too. I want us to remember that we need to tackle our debt so that we can be free to live and free to give. And I want us to remember that we need to be concerned about the vulnerable in our community and to work towards economic justice for all people. Listen, the season of Lent is not just about giving things up. It's also about taking things on. It's about preparing our hearts and our minds to follow Jesus to both Good Friday and Easter Sunday. What would it look like for you to take on making your money, making what you own, making all of your possessions under the lordship of Jesus Christ.
Christ. Pray with me. God, as we continue to journey through this season, we ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, where you are calling us to be people of justice in our community. Where you are calling us to be people who come alongside others who are crippled by spiritual debt, emotional debt, and even physical debt. God, help us to remember that we are image bearers of God, that other people are image bearers of God. We ask that you would guide us as a community of faith, God. Help us to have our ears to the ground to listen for the movements of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.